This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. I'm Uma Pagan Ampike Pagan, and this week on Bookmark, I'm speaking to the international best selling author Sophie Kinsella. You will know her, of course, from her shopaholic series of novels. She's got a brand new book out. It's called My Not So Perfect Life, and, and here's a little bit of a tease of what it sounds like. First, it could be worse. As commutes go, it could be a lot worse, and I must keep remembering this. Second, it's worth it. I want to live in London. I want to do this. And commuting is part of the deal. It's part of the London experience. Like Tate Modern. Actually, it's not much like Tate Modern. Bad example. My dad always says, if you can't run with the big dogs, stay under the porch. And I want to run with the big dogs. That's why I'm here. Anyway. My 20-minute walk to the station is fine, enjoyable even. The grey December air is like iron in my chest, but I feel good. The day's begun. I'm on my way. My coat's pretty warm, even though it costs £9.99 and came from the flea market. It had a label in it, Kristin Bior, but I cut it out as soon as I got home. You can't work where I work and have Kristin Bior in your coat. You could have a genuine vintage Christian Dior label, or something Japanese. Or maybe no label, because you make your clothes yourself out of retro fabrics that you source at Alfie's Antiques. But not Christian Dior. Hello, my name is Sophie Kinsella, and I am the author of My Not-So-Perfect Life. So... Let's start with the new book, which in many ways tackles those same anxieties that any working schlub has, right? Trying to fit in, (laughs) trying to change who you are, and also that secret desire to just leave it all behind. Yes, exactly. Well, there's a lot going on in this new book, and it it starts off with a a 20-something heroine trying to make it in the city. I've had a lot of readers kind of identify with this girl. She's called Katie. She's moved to the city from the countryside. And she's always fantasized about what life in London will be like. And she thinks it will be glamorous and quirky and kind of super amazing. And the reality is really different. She's living in a tiny, tiny flat. She doesn't even have room for a wardrobe. She has all her clothes in a kind of hammock above her bed. She has this hideous commute. She has difficult office politics and a bit of a nightmare boss. But she tries to put a brave face on it, and especially through social media. She projects a life which is a bit different from reality. So she even Instagrams cocktails that aren't her cocktails, and she takes pictures of people that she doesn't even know who are smiling and laughing, and she posts it all on her page, and she kind of gives the impression that life is fabulous, uh, which, I, again, is something which people have related to because everybody tries to put a gloss on their life. And she also slightly fixates on her older boss, who is a female. Uh, Who seems to have this perfect life. Who has a perfect life, or she believes she does. I mean, it's a book about, about first of all, projecting your own perfection. And second, it's about looking at people um, and judging them based on just what they appear to be. And I think we're all guilty of that. So she looks at this boss 
this boss is in her 40s. She's at the top of her game. She has cool clothes. She's assured and she's well-connected. And Katie, our heroine, just thinks, well, she's got it all. She has it all. And it never occurs to her that there might be, you know, stuff behind the scenes, reality. And then over the course of the book, she actually gets to know this woman. And of course, you know, I mean, what I think is that everyone has their stuff. The most glossy put-together person. (laughs) Start talking to them. They've got their problems. They've got their insecurities. Everybody has a less than perfect life. And that's the way it should be. But we don't see that anymore. And I suppose it's amplified a little bit by social media because this notion of keeping up with the Joneses is taken to the extreme, given that the Joneses are right there in your phone and they always seem to be in Santorini. Oh, I know, those wretched Joneses, right? They're always having a party. They're always doing amazing yoga poses. And by the way, their kitchen is really nice. And if the Joneses, if the Joneses kitchen isn't looking so good today, then you just click on somebody else, the Smiths, and their kitchen is great. So we can torture ourselves with the internet. I mean, in the old days, you're right, you kept up with your neighbours. But you didn't even get a peek into their homes as much, right? No, no, absolutely. And it it wasn't quite so relentless. Um, And also, if you're literally seeing your neighbours over the garden fence, you can see when they argue, you can see when they're, you know, they have a cold, they don't look so good. Through social media, you never see that bad stuff. You never see the time when they're looking bored or they didn't do so well at work today. You just see the positive. And I think it's fine. I mean, we all love social media. I love it. I love connecting with people. But I think if you are already prone to kind of an insecurity, then it can bring out the worst. I think people find it very difficult to make that disconnect even though they know what they see is in a sense unreal, and yet they still want to make it something aspirational. And I don't know why... I completely agree. Yeah, I don't know why that happens. Well, I think that we are irrational people. And I I, I mean, obviously, you can... uh, You know, when I was writing my not-so-perfect life, I thought about social media a lot. And I was trying to look at myself and think, how do I respond to this? And I decided that we are completely irrational beings. We know we are. (laughs) So... Like me, if I look at an advert for a face cream, I look at some glossy celebrity on a massive, great billboard. There's a part of my brain which knows that she has been photoshopped. She does not look like that in real life. Her skin is not that perfect. Yet the other part of my brain just believes what I see and instantly has this visceral response and thinks, quick, go and buy the face cream. And so you can sort of simultaneously know that it's all a fiction and yet kind of believe in it too. And I think that's the trouble, that, you know, we're very visual people. We see an image, and just for a moment, we believe it. I was reading your book, and one thought occurred to me about the setting. And I've lived in London for a few years, and I think London is unique in the sense that I think it's one of the hardest places to live in if you have no money. And yet, it inspires exactly what you said earlier about this notion of moving to London and living the high life, and yet it's absolutely horrible when you have no money. Mm. Yes. I I think even in New York, there, I think you can get by with a little bit of money, but somehow London feels harder. Am I wrong in thinking that? Well, I think it's a tough city to live in. I think part of the trouble is that it's geographically huge and that if you don't have money for rent, you are going to find yourself a long way away from the action. And so I think you can already feel that you're kind of on the fringes 
looking in, which is certainly how Katie feels. You know, you, you, you kind of watch a film like Notting Hill and you think, oh, well, that's where I'll be living. And it's very far from the truth. When in reality, um, you can't even afford to buy tickets to see Notting Hill. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and, I, and I think the trouble is as well, is that a lot of movies and sort of books and things have sort of given one the impression that you can lead a sort of boho, um, kind of artsy, independenty life right bang slap in the middle of London. And maybe once upon a time you could, but, you know, what's happened is all the bankers have had a look at that and thought, oh, yeah, we'll go and live there and have arrived. I could and never work out how Bridget Jones afforded the lifestyle she did. It's nonsense. <laughs> it's nonsense. Um, and I think that, you know, we've all kind of fallen for the myth. And, um, no, I think it is a tough old city to live in. You know, it's very, very full of people. The, the transport systems are crowded and... But at the same time, it is inspirational. And I am someone I've, you know, lived on and off in London all my life, and I still get a buzz from it. You see these iconic landmarks. You just sort of walk past Big Ben, exactly as Katie says, and it's Big Ben. And, you, you know, you can't, there's no substitute for that. It is a great city. I think you just have to have your eyes open when you arrive. And I think the trouble with poor Katie is that she was just very starry-eyed about it. And I think she, you know, she was not realistic. And I think you can have a great life in London. You just maybe can't have the life that you saw on the movies. And I think that's the, that's the point of acceptance that we want to reach, isn't it? Because that's the only way we're going to bridge that disconnect between perception and reality about the life we kind of think we want to lead versus the one we actually do. Oh, I know. I mean, I think the trouble is that, you know, modern life has given us a zillion choices. And I think that, that it's lovely to have choice, but actually you find yourself panicking. Like, am I this kind of person? Am I that? I don't know about in, in Malaysia, but in Britain, the media is constantly full of trying to define you. Are you this kind of millennial? Are you this kind of Generation X? Oh, it's exactly the same. Are you a this, a this? And you're constantly feeling like, well, who am I? Am I defining myself by, you know, where I choose to live, what I choose to eat, which film I chose to see? And it's also hierarchical, right? The more you make it in life, you seem to move up that ladder of, oh, now I can afford to eat superfoods and now I can buy designer yogurt. Now I'm a nutribullet kind of person. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, I completely agree. And, you know, defining ourselves by objects, defining ourselves by money, I mean, for a start, you know, where does that end? And also sort of feeling that there's a ladder. You know, in a way, it, life is, is kind of just sort of sideways steps, up steps, backwards steps. It, it, you know, you can't relentlessly be progressing. And I think we put pressure on ourselves in a way that I don't think previous generations did quite so much. Which is why we should all move to New Zealand. We should. This is a good idea. <laughs> we do it. <laughs> I think if enough of us do it all together, then we'll have a great time. Oh, but then New Zealand wouldn't be New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We'd spoil it. They're listening, going, no, 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 don't do that. <laughs> There was a peak at which point the single female protagonist, The Devil Wears Prada, The Shopaholic-type movies, um, there were lots of them coming out. And then Hollywood seems to have taken a step back from those kind of movies. Yeah. I haven't seen many in a long time. Yeah, I, I agree. They are not as prevalent. I, sort of, I, I, I think it's a shame because if I think they, once they do again, if it comes around again, they'll be really surprised that there is an appetite for that kind of film. 
But you know, I mean, so much of it now is these franchises. And I suppose if you've tied up all your resources into making all the next superhero movies, there isn't there isn't much room for anything else. I mean, it seems to me that every other movie has got a superhero. I mean, don't get me wrong. I love them, but well, which is which is why I think Bridget Jones' Baby was a pleasant surprise. I think everyone was just so excited at the nostalgia yeah, of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's that kind of film. I mean, it's just you know, there's room for everything, is what I feel. So, um, oh, it would be so nice to show show those sort of Hollywood that there's there's an appetite for that kind of story. <laughs> So, Sophie, I found that you've always had a very sharp eye for the zeitgeist. I remember reading I've Got Your Number, and, you know, that came out in 2012, and it was this incredibly astute observation about our obsession with technology, in particular the mobile phone being the center of our life. And 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 I've had those exact same thoughts about, you know, I know how everything in my life is on that phone. And I've often had this voyeuristic thought about, oh, I wonder what someone else's life is like. If I, if I had their <laughs> phone, I would know so much. And, I know. And reading this novel, it feels like that Instagram, social media, disconnect between perception and reality. I, I had the feeling that it's something that's really bothering you. Well, it's, it's true. I mean, I, I've watched, you know, social media arrive in our lives. I mean, I remember life before social media. And I kind of, I'm fascinating. I have this sort of love-hate relationship with it because I kind of feel like we're finding our way. I, I often think it's as though we've colonized a new planet and now we're all living on that planet. But we're, we're very new to the game and we're, we're trying to find our way and we're not always getting it right. And we're slightly fixated because it's all so new and shiny. And I think it can be a a bad influence. And I think the trouble is that for some people, it's going to be wonderful uh, and just sort of be a lovely creative thing for them to do, you know, lovely Instagram pictures. There's nothing wrong with the technology itself. You can't blame technology. But I think if you have the wrong personality type, it can make you feel insecure. You can't escape from it. And I do worry about, you know, children who can run into trouble online in all kinds of ways. You know, people can gang up, they can be mean. I mean, children have always been mean to each other, you know, especially teenagers. But in the old days, you could escape. You went home from school and you put all that behind you for the evening and then you started again in the morning. And now it's 24-7. And so I think that, it, you know, it's hard to get balance. And I think if you live your entire life online, I think you can get skewed you really can and and if you're feeling a bit vulnerable or a bit insecure then it kind of makes it worse and you've got four of your own and i guess this must be a big thing as a mother well i am very protective and actually i i'm i'm i love them being online and chatting and and all this sort of thing but i'm i'm you know i have limits um and i have like i'm really like no phones in the bedroom you know when you go to bed your phone does not go into the bedroom with you because i think that you know, I know about myself. It's addictive. It's addictive. I mean, I've written about shopping <laughs> addiction, um, and I've written about work addiction, and I would say online addiction is, I mean, I'm, I'm as bad as anyone myself. I'm writing my book, you know, trying to concentrate, and then, ping, something in the corner of my screen pops up, you know, whether it's a, an alert or it's some tweet I could read or it's something from, and I'm like, oh, what's that? <laughs> So although I'm trying to be very wise and write books about social media, I'm just as bad as anyone else. 
I want to talk to you a little bit about about chiclet. And, oh yeah. And I think it gets a bad rap now. Admittedly, thanks to the Kindle, I can binge on all the chiclet I want and not get judged. <laughs> Because no one can tell what I'm reading. Uh, but that being said, I've never quite, I, I, I've never thought of it as being disposable literature. It may be easy reading, but it's never pointless reading. And I think a lot of people miss that. Well, I think, yes. Um, I think that there are sort of a few kind of points to this. I think if you write a book which breezes along and tell the story in a kind of seamless way. I mean, I always try and write very first-person, confessional, stream of consciousness. You know, it almost feels like someone is chatting to you. You can make the mistake of feeling like it was just a kind of inconsequential chat. And especially if it's funny, you can think, well, that was just a funny little interlude. But actually, I think the best comedy works when there is a truth at the bottom of it. There is a message. Um, There is something to think about. And, you know, I certainly try to write books which are entertaining and funny, but they have something important, you know, at their core. And I would say that, you know, far from being disposable, I mean, I've just done a tour of the States and I had readers coming to, you know, have their book signed. They would have a book that they've had for 15 years of mine and they certainly have not thrown it away. And it, they, you know, it has been a sort of a friend to them. And so I think that, I mean, I just, I try not to listen when anyone's disparaging or they use the term chiclet or I don't really think of what I do as chiclet in particular. I'm just trying to write books that will entertain and have something to think about and make you laugh. And, you know, that's as far as it goes. And certainly I'm not even writing for women or not for women. I'm writing just for people, you know, for humans. Okay, Sophie, that being said, can we please talk about cover design? Ah. Because because if anyone can change this, I think the best-selling chiclet author of all time can. <laughs> and do you have no say in this? I mean, I mean, I can't differentiate between the thousands of chiclet books on shelves these days. The the color palette, the graphics, the typography, it's the content may be different, but Heck, I judge a book by its cover as much as the next person. Well, I know. I mean, I think that, 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 you know, I do have to sort of slightly leave it up to the experts who tell me, well, this kind of book will really, you know, sell with this look. I mean, I've actually had all my covers refreshed recently, and I think they are looking, you know, nice. They look different. They look very kind of clean. And so I'm, I'm really pleased with how my covers are looking. And I think that actually it's not just a sort of, as you say, chiclet thing. I think that publishers do tend to repeat a winning formula. I mean, all the psychological thrillers that we have You're all right. look the same. <laughs> and I think that publishers are torn between, on the one hand, create something really unusual. And on the other hand, you know, tell tell the reader it's going to be this kind of book and as a sort of shorthand. So if it's really dark and grainy and, you know, perhaps a blurred image, you're like, oh, that's a psychological thriller. And then with Chiclet, it tends to be more upbeat and bright. So I think that it's, it's that, you know, you, you do try to break the mold, but the trouble is that then the mold follows you. <laughs> it does. It does. I did, I did love the cover for um, Audrey, though. I thought now, that was a very cool cover. That's a very cool cover. And... Yes. I mean, that is not at all, you know, standard issue. I was absolutely delighted with that cover. I thought it was very cool, very sort of understated and really suited the book as well. I would love to hear some stories about male readers who've approached you. 
Do you know what? I think they're less rare than you might imagine. I, I've, I've met some guys at readings, and what's interesting is that they all begin like, well, you know, we were on holiday, and I'd run out of things to read, and I picked up the book, <laughs> and guess what? I really enjoyed it. And, you know, I do get slightly offended by this note of surprise in their voice. Like, wow, it was really good. But yes, you know, <laughs> what were you expecting it to be? <laughs> or I really laughed. And I think that I've, I, I've got more male readers than you might suppose, but I think they don't necessarily come to readings and they possibly read on a Kindle or behind <laughs> a newspaper. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, I remember one guy, he, he was a, a fellow father at um, the school that my kids are at, and he had read Can You Keep a Secret? Well, honestly, he could not stop talking about this book. I think it had really taken him by surprise that he laughed so much and it just made me so happy because i thought well okay you know these books do reach out so i'm i'm absolutely all for it you know what the solution is right the oh, yeah? solution are adult covers or male covers it's like yes. what it's like what jk rowling did with harry potter yes you're right i should have a like a really plain sober cover with perhaps a gun on the front <laughs> <laughs> absolutely i must say though i mean reading your books and i guess when you're writing them as well, it must give you some, I think it also gives some tremendous insight into the people who buy and read your books. And how much do you know about your readers? And I ask because the success of your novels seem rooted in the reader being able to see themselves in your characters. And I think that's a somewhat unique quality that exists for both chiclet and YA fiction as well. It's, I mean, it's not like in a thriller you would want to identify with the protagonist of Gone Girl. But, right. you know, with something like the Shopaholic series and with The Hunger Games and a lot of YA novels, you want your reader to be able to identify with that protagonist. Yeah, I agree. I mean, that's certainly the feedback that I get and I always have done. Um, right from the sort of the first Shopaholic book, people were saying, well, they were either saying, I'm Becky Bloomwood, or they were saying, well, I'm not Becky, but my mother is or my best friend is. So they could sort of understand this character. And um, I think it's because I write in a really confessional way. And I always seem to put a bit of myself into all my heroines. And I give them, I kind of expose their foibles, I think. I, you know, every single one of my heroines is very flawed in some way or other. But I am very loving towards my heroines. So, you know, they're flawed. They make mistakes. They do silly things. But... You know, I'm not I'm not harsh on them because I feel that all humanity is flawed and that's just the way we are. And I think that you, you know, they make mistakes and people relate to those mistakes and they go, oh, I've made that mistake. But then I show how actually they can get beyond those mistakes or they can learn or, you know, it can come right in the end. And so I think you start off with relating with the heroine. Then I always put my heroine in far worse situations than happen in real life. So you're thinking, oh, well, my life might seem bad, but it's not as bad as her life. And then it comes good. And so I think people love that journey. And they love it as well when I have my heroine express some thought about life that they've had themselves. And I don't know how it is, but I managed to sort of express thoughts that lots of people have. Um, there I was thinking I was so unique, but it turns out, actually, we're all, we're all more the same than we realize. Because there there's lines that I've written in books, and I thought, well, I have no idea if anyone else will get this. You know, this is probably just me. And then people go, oh, yeah, I think that all the time, too. And so it's, it's quite nice that we, but by, by kind of exposing some really quite embarrassing thoughts or 
flaws that I have, I kind of relate to my readers. Now, the market for chiclet is incredibly saturated. There's so much out there on shelves. And I was wondering how Sophie Kinsella stands out. Essentially, what is the pressure that you put on yourself when you're writing a new book? Well, you know, I mean, I, I'm someone who believes you can always learn and you can always get better. And I, I never rest on my laurels. I'm always trying to improve. I'm always trying to tell a great story. And I think that for me, you know, having a, a great plot is essential because you can have a lovely character, funny and relatable, but if nothing happens, then you sort of, after a while, you're like, what's the point? So I, I work really hard on creating an exciting plot. You're turning over the pages. I work really hard on comedy. I want people actually to laugh, you know, and I work on a scene till it makes me laugh out loud. And then when things get sad, I work on the scene until I cry. So I really want to kind of wrench these emotions out of my readers. And, you know, really, at the end of the day, I just make it the best I can. And there's no point trying to pressurize yourself to do better than that. That's, that's all you can do. As long as I feel like I've given it my all and I've, you know, done the best job I can, then, then I'm happy. You know, when I found out I was going to speak to you, I was trying to work out what is it about your books that always stand out. And I came upon one reason in particular, and they feature women who are a little ditzy, who may be preoccupied with the material things in life, but never at the expense of their intelligence, both emotionally and intellectually. Am I right? Does that kind of explain their appeal? Well, thank you for that. I, I'm a, I really appreciate that because that's absolutely how I feel. Um, and yes, I mean, I, I've always believed really strongly that it is not an either or. And I think I had to sort of really make that point strongly when people would talk about, for example, the shopaholic books as though it was just about shopping nothing else. And I would have to say, no, you know, if you actually read them, you will see that... Well, they hadn't read the books, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was just a <laughs> of people who haven't read them, by the way. They just see the word shopaholic and they think, oh, you know, sort of mindless bimbo. And actually, as, as my readers know, Becky is so far from being mindless, as well as shopping, which, you know, we can all relate to. She does things like expose fraud. She saves companies. She makes families reconcile. Um, she's always the girl with the ingenious solution. And so she absolutely has a mind. And the same with my, you know, workaholic lawyer, Samantha, in The Undomestic Goddess. Ditsy can't cook meringue to save her life. You know, desk is a complete mess and has a huge IQ. And so, you know, what I'm, I suppose I'm trying to reflect is women of today who can absolutely hold down a job and can absolutely be running a, a company and yet might be actually quite fixated on, you know, a, a particular lipstick. And why not do both? I, I really think it's not an either or. No, you're absolutely right. And I think and I think the people who do read the books see that. And I mean, you know, you you know how many copies you've sold. There's good reason well, for that. Well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. I know. I, it all makes me feel a bit dizzy, actually. So I don't try and think about that too much. <laughs> um, one last question. What does Sophie Kinsella read? Oh, I read everything. I kind of try to read all the latest sort of books by, in fact, a lot of authors who have become my friends, so Jojo Moyes and Jenny Colgan and Jane Green. Um, and then I, I read the odd psychological thriller, although I can't read anything too scary. I, I get very scared. 
Um, and then I read older books. When I, if I really like, need comfort reading, I'll read Agatha Christie. I can't get enough Agatha Christie. And the good thing is I always forget who did the murder. <laughs> I can reread the book and I'm like, hmm, I know it's one of you. It's either you with the moustache or it's you with the coat or it's the butler. It's one of them. It's always the guy with the moustache. You think? Okay. Or the girl with that. the moustache. <laughs> <laughs> Sophie, thank you so much for your time today. Well, it's been a joy. Thank you. Sophie Kinsella is a bona fide literary star. Her books have sold over 6.5 million copies in the UK alone. Go check out her latest book. It's called My Not-So-Perfect Life, and it's available at all good bookstores. This is Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.